time to time everybody in their in their life or in their, their practice and meditation practice feels things aren't quite right but they don't know exactly why what's what's wrong you can't put it down to any particular event or we can see that the events aren't really the problem well there's no particular event just things don't feel off out of it, jaded, not, not right. You wonder whether perhaps you feel a little run down, or, or you don't feel very, uh, feel very good. Mm. And particularly uh, for a in when you're actually. Um, just trying to work directly on on consciousness itself, then without sort of additives, as it were, then you, you wonder what you should be doing. You say a person is not interested in in training or in. Creating a foundation themselves, creating a refuge in themselves, they generally take refuge in something else. They just um, distract, basically, find something to occupy themselves with. Uh, a lot of activities like this, entertainments, things we do, just to make us feel okay. Without them, perhaps we feel a bit bored or pointless or you know, we don't we don't feel very clear or strong or bright. We generally we find we just plug into things that that make us feel attuned, make us feel we belong, make us feel we're we are in control. All the things are going right in our lives. And someone who uh, cultivates the way is making the effort to put those things aside, the refuges or the alternative refuges, and take refuge in the practice, in the watchfulness, Buddha, the truth, the way it is, the Dhamma, and the persistence and the directness and the inquiry, which make up the skills of a Sangha, of a true disciple. Although, as particularly as we meditate and cultivate, we recognise that there's a lot of uh, unskillfulness in in what we call our control systems. We get very willful, and where our controlling principles are often the ways of of manipulating ourselves or others, or repressing things in ourselves that should be looked at. Or uh, trying to, you know, control things very much from a self point of view. So quite often, the idea of control and controlling is is seen and recognised uh, as being something that should be relinquished. And yet, of course, it, that's only a partial truth because it's the control control. Of Control of delusion, or when delusion's in control, it should be relinquished, or greed, or hatred, or particularly just the nebulous forms of of 
delusion, the self-images, the, the uh, distractedness. But then there are control, there's a controlling uh, faculties, which are called the indriya, which means that the indriya are the authorities. Indra is the, is the, the ruler, and indriya is that which gives one authority. But it's authority which means a kind of genuine uh, responsibility rather than control from a power ego position. And the Indrias are five. There's uh, Virindriya, which is the oh no, Sadindriya, which is the quality of faith, faculty of faith, openness of mind, confidence, devotion, willingness, this Various ways we can look at this, define this mood, this spiritual faculty, the, willing, the willingness to proceed without uh, a fixed conclusion, to be open, to have that, that which allows one to be open, which is a kind of a sense of confidence and uh, also perhaps a kind of devotion that, that urges one to be open and to just be receptive. These two aspects of sadda and virya is energy energy which also implies a kind of persistence sometimes virya is, is translated as kind of as persistence the ability to stick with stay maintain don't uh, just give up on everything sag so of course that virya is, is very much dependent upon sadda when there's willingness and openness, then the energy faculty, virya en- faculty, is supported from that rather than from a I want to be, I want to have, I want to get, I'm going to be, I'm going to make for me, you know, which is the sort of corruption of it. It's this, this feeling there is another than the way it is now. Things will change. That's faith. And therefore there's that Persistence allows one to go through changes. Very much allows one to go through changes rather than means I'm going to change everything. So that's how sadha and virya work. Sometimes it's all one can do is just to do that. If we don't quite know what we're supposed to be doing or what the results will be exactly, but we have that faith and we just stay with it and recognizing things will change and shift. It's the nature. But we can't say now, when, or why even. It's the nature of Dhamma. Mindfulness is, this, uh, is the thing that gives us some understanding because we, we're, we c- mindfulness is actually connecting your attention to the process of Dhamma, to the body, feelings, mind, the process of Dhamma, it's actually directly connecting it, one to it, so that mindfulness is that which enables a path to be established rather than just a, a kind of, when we have faith with no mindfulness, it means that things are rather slow because all we know how to do is just trust and wait, which is better than not trusting and not waiting. But with mindfulness you can actually you can recognize, oh that's the point, it's there. That's what needs to be relinquished. This is what needs to be enhanced. Or we, we're able to connect to the process. And w- mindfulness means we don't tend to to linger and proliferate in the delusions or the, the hindrances that make the whole process very slow and uh, irregular and erratic. Mindfulness is, is, with mindfulness there's always some power of concentration, some focusing, some steadiness, some stability. And as mindfulness become, is, becomes cultivated properly, then that steadiness and stability uh, becomes enhanced with, and, and develops into what, samadhi, which is 
uh, an enhanced kind of concentration. It's concentration that is settled. It's not. It's not uh, strained. So samadhi has the quality of being established, and therefore it's relaxing. One can abide in that. And just being abiding in a in a relaxed and clear, unhindered way, then we find the fifth faculty of panya or wisdom, direct wisdom, not not conceptual, indirect or intellectual understanding, but actually direct seeing it now. Because the hindrances are laid aside, the mind is fresh and bright, and we're able to to see clearly, there's this clarity. So these are things that should, on the ideal level, be in control of our life or control of this life. And so when, when it's uh, one of the ways of, of wise reflection is to consider whether these are present or absent, uh, how they work, um, which ones perhaps need to be uh, enhanced or dwelt upon or re-established. When one is just feeling things aren't, you don't know what's going on or where you're going. Now, Sadda, people sometimes do this, just go back to, to faith. Um, uh, for example, on a fairly um, ordinary level, then one of the, one of the Way that people go back to faith when they feel a bit confused is because they just they come to the monastery. They just think, well, I just go to a good place, and maybe I just need to be somewhere where it's 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 you know it's 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 holy or it's respectful or it's it's about truth and wisdom. Just be there, and you know they have that faith, or they come and they make offerings, or they make offerings to a shrine, or sometimes people ask for blessings. And we can think of all this as being ritualism or dealing in magic and superstition. But actually this is only if you take the, the tokens of the event literally. Generally what's happening is, is maybe giving or chanting or something or the other. But of course not that that's, a, that's doing the, the work, but the per, the, the, those, those act as kind of... Um, as, gar- as helps to establish a particular quality of mind, which is faith, sense of, of com- stability, devotion, openness, uh, trust, and so forth. So this is something that people find themselves doing. Um, even people who are not particularly religiously minded, when there's a, somebody dies or is ill, and then they phone up and they ask for some chanting, or they want you to come to a funeral, or a, or a wedding. <laughs> I don't know if you call weddings something that's going wrong. <laughs> that's just the wrong way to look at it. <laughs> but to make sure something doesn't go wrong. <laughs> Why is this? Are they just foolish, or is it actually some some intuition that realizes? Well, we, you know, we want to go beyond just the. The thinking mind, sort of sense of relationship to to something that that brings me in touch with uh, other higher aspects of my mind, higher aspects of my consciousness. So that's that's faith, and uh, actually, it's good to remember that, you know, not to just push it away as a as a low level kind of simple, you know, thing for simple-minded people. But actually, uh, other, other, others, we find faith just by, say, going to see a teacher. Maybe we haven't got anything particular to say or anything really burning issues. You just want to be there and, you know, feel a sense of connection to that, that person, or just even the, the shrine or the Buddha, and just be with that and kind of turn one's attention that way.
uh, or make offerings. Mm. Or chant, because all these are ways in which we, we open up and we express something that's irrational. And in devotional practices, you put energy into that. So it becomes a basis for a kind of persistence and you, an, an effort. And you recognize that uh, just that alone, for example, if we, we do circumambulations or we do the evening chanting and recitations together, just, just actually opening up to it and putting energy into it and staying with it and keeping the, and holding the mind onto it sometimes can be, have a very helpful effect on the, the feelings in the mind. We just actually, and we begin to understand the nature of consciousness through that. That consciousness takes on, absorbs, takes on the qualities of the things it's focused on. And the problem for all, uh, all of us is that the consciousness is, is hypnotized by all the impressions that we call ourself, the karmic impressions, the thought processes, the physical feelings, the emotions that we call ourself. And the consciousness is always kind of leaning that way, inclining that way. And uh, karma, vipaka, is, can be either good or bad or even, but then, but then, in either case, it tends towards um, some unsatisfactoriness. Unsatisfactoriness of good karma is is the feeling of one isn't one never feels quite completed by it. So no matter how much good we've done, we may feel a kind of sense of happiness, but yet it's not a rested state. There's still something more to do, or there's things that that need to be protected or defended or kept going or maintained or um, and of course a bad karma is uh, the things that give us cause doubt, regret, um, stir up feelings of aversion or greed in the mind. And the consciousness is always tends to be focused in this way and as long as it's focused in this way one has the, the net result is this sense of of self, this impression of self, which is unsatisfactory, even if it's quite nice for at times, because it's a sense of separation and, uh, and therefore a kind of alienation, which means that uh, we're always trying to hold things together in ourselves or around us, or our families together, or our children, or our friends or our religions or our monasteries or our places or our, the places we work or things we believe in and think are good. And we've got to kind of keep it going. And this is the suffering of attachment to good karma. It becomes mine. The things, the objects that become mine and me. With mindfulness, we can recognize that whatever the, the things that occupy us are, they are changing. Their thoughts and feelings, what is thought and felt about, changes, comes and goes, and doesn't belong to us. One's friends, one's children, one's property do not belong to us. And the very processes of thought and feeling also don't belong to us. They come and they go. They, they burst out. They, they rise up. They can be highly stimulated at times. They can be extremely passionate at times. They can be uncontrollable. They can go limp when you want them to be bright and flare up when you want them to be cool. But they also they change and they, are, they don't belong to us. They're not under our control.
but they can be under the, the power or the influence or the control of, of the five indriya, the five faculties, five spiritual faculties, such as mindfulness, faith, effort, persistence, and uh, concentration, samadhi, and wisdom. And these are what we have to keep applying to it. But of course, the, the whole problem with taking these things as self is that the self view tends to tends to erode these qualities. It makes it, we lose our faith. We lose that sense of openness because instead we feel, from the point of view of self, it's me. I can figure this out. I've got to do it, or I can't do it, or I'm this kind of a person who can't do it, or I'm this kind of a person who shouldn't. These things shouldn't happen to me. So. Instead of the sort of open, here it is, let's look at this in, a, in an open way, we come to, we approach things from certain fixed views. So there's no real, there's no that faith quality, the brightness of faith, the no position quality of faith. The self-view then erodes faith. It erodes persistence because when we, things are, when we operate from this position of self, we go, oh, I don't see why I should bother with this, I'm fed up, I've had enough, I'm wasting my time, or I can't do it, I should be getting results now, and not getting results, and so on. We get impatient, we give up, we get despair. So our persistence faculty flounders, we lose heart, and then our persistence goes. Particularly, you know, to persistence of virya is a difficult thing because, uh, it has, you know, with these faculties, they have to be, they have to be seen to, when they develop as something that has a, a constancy to it and a, and a far-ranging thing to it, far-ranging uh, um, scope. So sometimes one can be persistent when, when things are either very clearly going well right, this is good. Or even when there's a sort of a tangible difficulty that you can brace yourself against and tackle and struggle with. I find that both these states are things that one can develop a great persistence over. Even with hardships and difficulties, they offer a sort of challenge that that something wants to rise up to and, and, and you can focus on it. But what is most difficult is the neutral states. Well, bother, waste the time. We get bored, or we may very well think, uh, "Well, you know, this isn't really very difficult. Why bother to do it?" Certainly, in in, uh, in the monastic life, then we, we can find that we start to lose the sense of sharpness and clarity because a lot of the, the details of the life, you think, "Well, you know, I can do that because I can do it. I won't bother to do it." I know I can do it, therefore it's no, no longer a challenge for me, so I won't bother to do it. It's one of the things with, with when you take on resolutions. You take on some kind of aditan or resolution to say, get up at three or something like that. You do it for three mornings, you think, oh, well, I can do that. So the next morning you wake up thinking, well, I can do it. What, who, what do I have to prove this for? What am I trying to prove? Perhaps I'm just trying to be, I'm being egotistical, trying to prove that I'm better than everybody else. Uh, go back to sleep. Oh, wake up. Oh, no, quick. I rush off to the morning charging. So you actually end up doing worse than before you took the, uh, the resolution because one feels one has got it. It's just to stay with something through the fluctuations, the feeling that there's no point in it or that you can't, you, you know, you've got it all licked anyway, so why bother? That's, but you see, self, whenever self says, I've, I understand things, then the persistence disappears. Whenever self says, oh, I've accomplished this, I needn't bother with it anymore, then persistence disappears, doesn't it? So whenever we take our, even our accomplishments as self, then sooner or later we begin, they begin to disappear. There's a, uh, an example in the suttas where the, uh, Elder Sariputta is talking about, he uses the simile of a brass bowl, and he says the first case the thing is all dirty and mucky, 
and you know, one, then one doesn't look after it at all. And it's dirty. And he says, this is the case of someone who hasn't accomplished anything and isn't, do- isn't doing anything about it. There's also the case of the person who takes something, a dirty brass bowl, and they, they polish it, you know, which is good. But then they leave it, and it starts to get all blemished again. Mm-hmm. And then the third case is the person who takes the brass bowl, and he polishes it, and he keeps polishing it. And every day he polishes it. So he keeps, even though he's accomplished that sense of brightening, he keeps, keeps it going, keeps it going, keeps it going. He doesn't say, well, I can do this, so what? He continues to keep it bright. And that's the kind of persistence faculty where you're not just resting on a sense of, I, I can do this. You know, This is when one takes accomplishments personally, as self. So, next time you have an accomplishment, <laughs> don't take it personally. <laughs> Any moment now, it could happen. Because actually this does lead to ruin in, in, in people. People definitely do, you know, accomplish things, but then they find they, they go corrupt, get corrupted after a while. Because of this sense of self, atta. Mindfulness gets eroded because uh, we take, we tend to feel, we get, we lose the dispassion. It's an evenness of it. Mindfulness is very much about seeing things very evenly. And as soon as we start taking mindfulness or uh, or things personally, then we get biased. It gets difficult to be mindful of of um, states like dullness or doubt or irritation or the various kind of karmic processes. And also recognize that, that uh, taking things, everything in terms of self means uh, we can assume that every every unfortunate feeling or unhelpful mind state is because of ourself. Or we, or in, perhaps in, the, in this religious context we say because of my karma. But yet Buddha very, very clearly said this is to save things because of karma is a wrong view. It can be because of various things such as climate, health, food. Just these, which have nothing to do with one's karma, apart from the fact that we're born, we have a body. So we may be under the effect of just having eaten something that wasn't very, didn't affect us properly. We feel kind of slightly stale or sour in the mind because uh, we've got stomach problems or a headache or you know, physical things like that. So it, uh, it's important to to actually develop the way of being able to be mindful of things, of, of even unhelpful or, uns- or unpleasant things or unsatisfactory things, rather than always take any of it as, as a self, as personal. Not to, mindfulness has no real conclusions. It just, no, it's this, no, it's this, no, it's this. You see, and how, how mindfulness is really is a development of this kind of persistence in a subtle way, energy just to just to develop that that continuing, continual watchful connectedness to one's to the experiences we're having in a direct way rather than thinking about them or worrying about them. When got any kind of concentration is, is uh, self affects that because we start it brings up the, the 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 desire to be and to have that make it very difficult to be fully concentrated or, or at ease or even when there is samadhi present then there can be a kind of greed for more to have it or to get to to higher special states of mind 
or super super mundane state, so we get this kind of greed going, which is a uh, a corruption of samadhi. With uh, panya wisdom, is the faculty that uh, is the some way it's the it's the purest. If it's if it's mindful wisdom, mindfulness wisdom, so that enables us to connect to the experience of the Buddha, the awakened one. We can actually listen to the teachings and use some of those teachings and I- investigate our experience in the light of those teachings. So Panya is like a really is a, uh, a supreme faculty because in a way it gives us the direct connection to the experience and the view and the vision of the, the awakened one and other accomplished beings of the present or the days gone by. When you take a teaching, and then you you open to it with faith, and you work with it with persistence, and you watch with mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Now, this teaching of anatta, not self, is uh, something that that uh, we don't want to just adopt it as a theory. So using, using the wisdom teachings is not just a matter of belief or adopting things from a theoretical point of view, but, but being open to that and using, trying to use what that teaching is pointing at as a way of investigating your own experience. And so the anatta points to three particular positions, the position of mine, the position of me, and the position of myself these particular positions that occur in our conscious experience. And uh, Buddha, in various ways, refutes all of these positions. And these positions have to be checked out. You check them out for yourself. Does, is this mine? Does it belong to me? Is it something that's going to be there whenever I want it to be? Not there when I don't want it to be? Will assume certain characteristics when I want them to have it? Or, or those characteristics will disappear when I don't want it. Is it really mine? Is it under my control? And then uh, we, con- we contemplate body and things around us and people around us. But most uh, help skillfully, most to the point, we contemplate what are called these the five khandhas, or the which means form, particularly the form of one's own body, or any kind of form that's seen with the eye any kind of solid object that appears in eye co- in any consciousness really, but often the eye consciousness visually, but it can be tactile form. Any kind of object, does it belong to me? Or is it something that just kind of comes and goes, isn't going to be the way I want it to be, um, is not dependent upon my wishes, but has its, has a kind of, uh, its own existence? Seems, it seems to have its own existence, at least does not mine. And uh, so we can we can you know, look at some of the, the things that are the forms that, that are around us. Then also the the feelings. We say we have a painful feeling in the body. My my leg hurts, and uh, you know, I have these terrible feelings bodily feelings. Say the feeling perhaps belongs to the leg, but then we recognize it doesn't really belong to the leg, it, it belongs to some, doesn't belong to anything actually. It's a kind of relationship between a body and a mind and a, and a response to that. The response is per- perception. Mm-hmm. Certain feelings perceived in a certain way and then there's a reaction to it. So it doesn't actually belong to anything at all. It's a kind of, it's a strange composite 
interdependence, which, which stimulate the sense of mind. When you investigate a physical feeling, like is it in the leg or is it in the heart? If it's in the heart, then you know, then it, then it can't be in the leg, can it? Or is it in both? Or is it, uh, the sensations in the leg and the, the feelings in the mind? And then the reaction to that, the resistance to it, where's that? And we recognize it's only when these, all these different things come together that you get the sense of, ah, oh, this is me, this hurts, this is mine. And yet none of those positions, in none of those positions does this experience of pain occur. It only, only occurs through the com- coming together of all of those positions and the sense of mine occurring. And yet the leg's not mine, the mind's not mine, the, the reaction's not mine, the feeling isn't mine. But when they come together in this blur, then suddenly this mind, me, self, comes up. And the thought, or a feeling, or a perception, or a mental formation such as a, a thought, or an emotion, or, or an attitude, or or a drive, or an instinct. What is that? Is that mine, or is it something that's causally conditioned, that is, comes around through a particular object relating to a particular memory, and a particular habit, and a mood, all coming together to bring up a certain reaction. And often a reaction that we have no control over. We find ourselves, sometimes as meditators, feeling terribly disempowered because you know even though we know we shouldn't be this way and we want to be this way we're finding feelings of great animosity or craving arising and we think oh, stop doing this will you you know i want to be this way i don't want to be that way and you're getting these terrible or apparently terrible instincts happening but then you know the idea of using the practice is we have to so well, it's like this now. Now, whose is it? What does it? Be- who does it belong to? And you, you break it up with wisdom, with the power of, well, of all these five faculties. First, it was the faith, which means that gives us the, the idea of being willing to and open to look at that with some confidence, rather than always panicking or trembling or denying it. That persistence, which means we go to it. The mindfulness this is the faculty of, of directly, dispassionately observing, focusing, concentrating, and, and understanding, and using these, these teachings to help us. So when the mind is craving, or whinging, or whimpering, or gnashing, boiling, seething, then it's, you know, at least that the, the sign of faith has to be perhaps the first thing. It's okay. You can't say it's good. You know, it's not something you favor or want, but you've got to come to a position where it's okay, where you can, you know, you're not taking that as self. You're not just going to creating further hindrances over the hindrances that are present. And then to, you know, if one has that faith, then we investigate, we hold it, we hold that thing, we go to it, that's energy and effort, and then you, you hold it with, with effort and you pe- investigate it with mindfulness, you penetrate it with wisdom. So sometimes with these things, like, you know, it's, uh, faith can be that, I was saying the other night, you know, just, just, you put whatever is in your mind, figuratively, right in front of you, and you bow to it. Just to, just to change the reactions around. So, you know, you're feeling states of negativity and depression. No, negativity and depression. Here we are. I salute you, negativity. So you, you're actually changing the perception. 
to give you know which gives you the the uh, a break to where you can come from a more objective dispassionate position so you see how some of these exercises in terms of bowing and revering and having you know bringing up the faith faculty can be very helpful if they become you start to get a feeling from not as just external ceremonies but really as learning particular exercises that if you're open to them and you watch what happens and you're willing to then they really they really can be very skillful develop skillful means in relating to to things that otherwise we just get uh, crushed by or, or or mesmerized by faith does give you some sense of dis- distancing or, or in, in a skillful way So the um, consciousness is not mine. So it's, or is it? In my mind, mind con- uh, consciousness—is it mine, or what is it? Who does it belong to? We can see that consciousness arises dependent upon conditions and causes. This is eye consciousness arises when there's an object and an eye organ. Then eye consciousness arises. When you close your eyes, eye consciousness doesn't arise even though the organ of the eye is still there. Close your eyes and suddenly what happens? Mind consciousness arises probably more strongly because in a way that that one consciousness shuts down so the others become stronger become more focused so you see that just as the eye consciousness arises dependent upon an organ and an object similarly the other consciousnesses operate in that way they're not they're not permanent they're not they're not mind but of course mind consciousness is something that that doesn't close the way that an eye does it's like having ears, you know, a per- permanently open thing. And also, it, it doesn't, you know, where you can actually, with, when, you're, when you're hearing things, then when your ears are open, then maybe there's no sound, nobody's, nothing's happening, so you, you hear silence. Well, that's nice, because no bells tinkling, no cars driving by, nobody's hammering, or no sounds, nobody's talking, it's silent. How nice, because the objects are, are much more... Um, connected to the physical world but the mind as you know it doesn't have to be anything happening anywhere (laughs) for the mind consciousness to be actually saturated with continual impingement of memories and and karmic karmic stuff so it's not only so it seems to be this one is really the one that seems very much to be me and mine because it seems permanent But uh, the but the experience of of mindfulness is not is you investigate the objects of consciousness as changing, and then you develop meditation skills so that you can actually not just change the objects but change the states of consciousness, like get it so that you can be conscious or your attention onto your body rather than just onto the mind objects. And then attention onto a visual object, like use, using a casino, so that or a sign you can watch, or moving attention around your body. So you can see then that the mind consciousness is not is not just it's not just it, it's not permanent. It, it can be moved, and if you you know if you and then its states depend upon very much what object you focus it upon. So that's one of the things that we try to encourage in practicing meditation. It's not just to develop a kind of, you know, one-pointed meditation exercise. Unless, until you can, until you can develop some some fluency in a few of them, so you can 
you can really learn how to move your attention around. Because if you don't do that, and you think, well, I want to get concentrated, I'll just focus on this thing. And, you know, just really get into that and don't bother with all this other stuff. Too much hassle. It's not calming. It's not peaceful. Well, that's fine, as long as, as, long as what you're, you're in a good state. But then if, when things change, as they do, then you find, you know, you get also stuck onto an unpleasant or unwholesome state because you haven't learned how to move your attention around. You don't know how to turn away. You just know how to absorb. So things that uh, sometimes are not very tranquilizing can, are really helpful for developing mindfulness, like walking meditation, recollections, you know, the things that we think, oh, I don't want to do that. It's going to sit and get calm. But actually, calm is only one feature, only one of the features of mindfulness, uh, of meditation. And often it's made too much of, or anguished over. Mindfulness and the ability to, to move your attention around so that you don't get stuck. And one of the reasons why, of course, we do get stuck is because this feeling of me and mine tends to project itself onto mind consciousness. So we want to have a nice permanent state of mind consciousness that's good and pleasant and bright. There's that hunger for that to be... We don't think of it in terms of mind, but the instinct is there. Sense of me is related to the agent. Mine is the object, me is the agent, or the subject, the one who does, or that, that, that position, that position of doing. Also, you can recognize that in any, in any where this notion occurs, it's not true, because um, me, me, me gives the idea that the, that, the, that the subject or the agent is separate but the agent is never separate from its action. So me can only occur in terms of some activity or some what's called a sankhara. So me being mindful, mindfulness is a sankhara, it's an activity, it's a good one. So the often thing of me being mindful is really a result of activity. Me getting places, me failing to get places, me going to this state and that state is, a result, is activity and action. When we see that me can never be separated from some activity or another, you then you and examine this and you recognize that me is an illusion. It's the ripple created by movement, by activity. It's the wake of activity rather than the leader of it. It's the result of activity rather than the agent of it. And when activity is lingered upon, and, and then we get the idea of myself, which extends that ripple through time. That extends that trace, that meanness is extended through time, into, and it becomes myself when it's got a past. And then, of course, just as it has a past, we imagine that it will have a future. What happens to myself when I die? What will I be in the future? So this, this then this, this agent, which is actually just right now the immediate result of the activity that we are witnessing or experiencing, is taken as a thing, and then the thing is then projected backwards and forwards as, a, as an entity. Right? I was this and I will be this. And this is myself. And so with that then, the nature of the activity defines the nature of the self. If we're having a good time and things are going well, then myself is bright and progressive and, you know, I'm going to have a good rebirth or a good time in the future. If it's having a bad time, then I'm a corrupt, foolish idiot who has all kinds of hideous defilements or traumas or bad karma and I'm going to the pits in the future. This is myself. 
and that's 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 the way it happens. But you see that it's incredibly convincing. But right now, recognize that you know wherever you're at now, whenever just the, the sense of being it creates this suddenly, you know. Who you who you who you see yourself as being is so much defined by the mood of the moment. And yet it says, "I am thirty years old." And yet it's actually just the mood of the moment. And you're feeling a bit kind of grey or depressed or something. Well, so I'm wasting my life for the last thirty years. Uh, no, I'm not getting anywhere. Must have been brought up wrong, and my mother I had a funny relationship with her. And suddenly, this this mood of the moment strings together. Sometimes even creates a whole load of perceptions and memories that back it up. And then it says, "Well, you know, because of this, because of all this stuff in the past, which I've just created, then I'm bound in the future to be, you know, this way." And there we are. Rock solid. <laughs> so you create the past and it creates the future. It's myself. But if the mindfulness wisdom, see, you just know that you don't know. You just know this. You don't know yourself. You don't know anybody. And you don't know yourself. You just know this feeling and this mood and this perception. That's what you. That's what you can witness directly. And you just don't. You know. And though it's, you know, it's almost psychologically unbearable to to say I don't know myself. It's actually true. You get opinions. But you, but any given moment, you just see certain facets, and certain certain perceptions, and certain things are seen and recognised and brought up and assembled into a self. Now, when we meditate and contemplate, then of course we can actually get into some rather nice spaces. You can get fairly kind of blissful or concentrated or calm. And then, you know, unfortunately, this doesn't by itself uproot the habit. So we believe in that. We believe we are. We believe we, we are now right and convinced and true and enlightened and bright and wise and therefore everything I do and say is right, exactly, proper and I always will be, you know, and so on. So this is what, um, in the very often in the sutta, you, the Buddha talks to these Brahmas are like that. The Brahmas in the great, who are these beings of ultimate, well not ultimate, but of near as, like, you know, to us pretty, it seems pretty ultimate, blissed out states of, of imperturbable tranquility and calm. And uh, saying that the imperturbable, so that the imperturbable Brahma say, I am Brahma, the imperturbable immutable, eternal, I have been, I will be, I am, nothing is greater. This is what Brahmas say. That's all they say, actually. It <laughs> 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 gets a bit tedious, living with Brahmas. They keep going on about it. And they keep saying that long enough until eventually they, they, sometimes they, they, they wear out a bit. Like um, sort of any old tape that gradually wears down. Because what is not recognized is that this, how can it be a self? A self implies something that's fixed and, as we say, eternal and nothing and, and is independent of things. So that when we take consciousness as self, we're saying, this is me and mine and myself and it's, 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 it exists on its own. It's myself. It's not, it's not because of other things. It, it's me. It's mine. And yet consciousness always depends upon some object, some mind state, some feeling, some feeling that's being adhered to, owned. 
rested in, delighted in. It's dependent upon an object. So if it's dependent upon an object, how can it be a unified entity? It's always some kind of dualism there. But in the glory, or in the passion, or in the defilement, that is not seen. There's this seeming unity, which is bondage, rather than, rather than uh, divine union. It's a kind of a bondage. So even the most, the highest and the imperturbable, which actually I wouldn't mind having a sniff at myself. <laughs> you know, now and then I wouldn't mind dipping into that one. But uh, even this, the Buddha says, you know, don't, don't hang on. I'm saying that. The deathless is the unsupported mind. This is deathlessness. The mind that has no foundation, no clinging, no basis. And uh, so what is the basis? The basis can be an object. It's dependent or resting on a particular object or state or form or mood or feeling or perception. Or it's the resting and dependent on a particular well, any kind of object, and some of them we call ourself, and some of them we call you or it or that. But if it depends upon an object, then it's we call it a supported consciousness. Uh, consciousness that clings and is sustained and fed by that object. And therefore it cannot be what's called the deathless. But there is the deathless, and the Buddha says this is through non-clinging, through relinquishment, through abandonment of all things, consciousness, form, perception, feeling, and mental activities are to be relinquished. Now, this doesn't in any way mean rejection. It doesn't mean, because if, if it's rejection, then I reject them. But the relinquishment the Buddha talks about is non-delighting in, not taking hold of. So, the non-delighting in, or it's called nibbida, non-fascinated by consciousness, any consciousness, not fascinated by any form, any feeling, any perception, any volitional tendency, not drawn into hatred or greed or delusion by it. So for this, we need some, we need some strength do that. And the strength of this is sadha, faith, virya, persistent energy, effort, mindfulness, samadhi, and wisdom. This gives us to the recognition that it's these, and not me, and not myself, that will cultivate dhamma properly. Anatta uh, then is, is this, it's this uh, a synoptic way of remembering this teaching, uh, using it. Faith, in a way, is an expression of anatta, of letting go of oneself, of letting go of one's beliefs and one's thoughts and one's uh, doubts and one's rationality. Energy, effort, is a, in a way an expression of anatta. It's a letting go of one's sense of, of uh, one's, one's wavering in terms of, of application, according to whether one's interested or enthused or getting you know, excited by it or not. Mindfulness is, it, is an expression of anatta because it's about a dispassion, even recognition of things that everything is changing. It's this kind of way of, of discerning thoughts, feelings, comings and goings. So it, it's an expression of anatta. 
samadhi is an expression of anatta, and that it is a recognition that consciousness itself can shift and change beyond just being absorbed into the karmic process of our personality identity. And panya, wisdom, is an expression of anatta in that it recognizes there is no attainment in terms of self and no progress in terms of self. Progress is always in terms of, of dhamma. And yet there is that wonderful possibility for ease, dispassion, freedom, deathlessness, to, for consciousness to experience this, for this to be, record, to be fully experienced. Even if consciousness is not self and not mine, when, it's, when it is relinquished, when it's not clung to, then it can open and receive this blessing, the blessing of Nibbāna. Tonight is our all-night vigil. It's a time for, particularly for, you know, considering some of these themes and practices, taking the time to to work on little things, little seemingly insignificant things. You know, the, you know, it's the funny feeling in one's mind, or the way the energies shift, the physical energies shift not to take any of it as self. So we don't, oh, I'm feeling this way, I don't know. I'm not good enough, I can't. I'm not getting anywhere I want to be. No, it's that, you know, persistent looking at that, not believing in it, using that as the basis for one's practice, not getting stuck, not falling into habits, not just kind of complacently dozing away or, you know, getting uptight and trying to hold everything together and be super strong. Just investigating these these positions of, of self. And do it you can do it with a bit of thinking or, you know, discernment, like reflecting and considering. Do it with small actions. Just standing, walking, sitting, chanting, bowing. And uh, really looking into these five aggregates, mind states, consciousness, body. Investigate these things very steadily, don't be in a hurry. And the ones that come up, the ones that you can actually directly get to. And so practice is always a mixture of dealing with what's what's actually happening and also on one level and in another way we're also trying to develop certain skills, techniques that will enable us to to, um, approach and investigate these Natural karmic experiences that we have. The two, then when the two come together, then we have insight. So it's not a matter of just kind of thrashing away at some exercise for its own sake, nor is it a matter of just kind of wallowing in whatever moods come along, but of bringing the two together. Then we find that there's a, a real insight experience realization of the cessation of suffering and the path. So we encourage everyone to uh, to use the time skillfully. It'll be uh, at midnight we'll have the circumambulation around the stupa and then uh, uh, there'll be a hot drink in the reception room after that. So Visitors, you can stay. Always linger through the night, and if you, you can always sleep in here if you like. You just get put the cushions together. We bring the 
throw the carpet over you and the blankets and the hay so you're always, you're always welcome to you do the all night vigil and you're kind of you're regarded as a really a kind of accomplished person who's given the the uh, three star treatment of a, <laughs> a floor and uh, a cup of tea in the morning and so it's a really good thing to find uh, you know to to make a point of of doing it from time to time if you when you have the you can make the occasion and we'd like to support it Thank <clears throat>